for you to open up the eyes of our hearts ever more widely to your majesty and your glory, your greatness, um, that we would behold you as the one who's unique, incomparable, um, the one who is all-powerful and the one who loves us enough to offer his life for us. We, Lord, want to be your people and we want to hear your voice and we want to live by your spirit and by your word and, and we just confess that it's... Um, it's something that we constantly need grace to do, and so we just ask that you'd be gracious to us. Allow us to love you with a love that is unparalleled, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would learn what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that people would sense in us and smell in us and taste in us the aroma of Christ, not the aroma of the world. Father, I also just, we pause and, and pray for those who are feeling weak, who are feeling exhausted, who are feeling down, who are feeling perhaps hopeless, or maybe feeling discouraged because of failure, or uh, just, just feeling uh, down because of sickness. We, we, we just pause and ask a special blessing of grace upon them, give them courage, give them hope. Remind us all that the best is yet to come, that right now the best we can do is look through a mirror dimly, but someday we're going to see you face to face when all things are made new, and we, we want to live for that and in light of that. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd feed us this morning through your word, that your spirit would powerfully move um, amongst your people. Lord, we want, don't want this to be a wasted moment, but we want it to be a, a sovereign moment when you have your way with our hearts and teach us. And so I pray that that would be done uh, today uh, through this text of Judges, in Christ's name, amen. In the spirit of Father's Day, I wanted to start on, uh, with a confession. Um, I hate to say this in front of Adam because he'll tease me about it, but... If you don't know, Pastor Adam, he's like this, this uh, master chef, griller, smoker dude. Uh, my confession is, is that the first time that I tried to smoke meat, my, my thought was, the more smoke, the better. Okay, now I know it's a complete and utter rookie move to, you know, smoke your meat too much. But the fact of the matter is, I just kept throwing handfuls of hickory, you know, on the coals, on my smokinator that... I learned from Adam, but I kept throwing it on, and I think I had a, a pork shoulder on there, and I did it for six hours, and by the time I was done, it was black, and, and it tasted literally, even at the center of the meat, it tasted like an ashtray, like I completely destroyed the piece of meat, um, and I learned that more smoke is not better, um, just a little bit will do, but it's pretty amazing that smoke can get into the center of meat in a way that even marinade has a hard time doing. Uh, a little smoke goes a long way. Now, some people like the taste of smoke, other people's don't, but people smoke almost everything. They have smoked Gouda, and you have smoked paprika, and people have smoked ketchup and smoked mustard, and I mean, smoke in pretty much everything. Um, and maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but it's, it's something that people like in their food. But one thing I've noticed that people don't like is they don't like it on their body and clothes. Have you noticed that? Like you sit around a campfire having s'mores and you're having a great time and, and maybe the log isn't, uh, isn't, isn't dry enough and so it smokes and it's just blowing everywhere and you have fun with the s'mores but you get done and you walk away and your hair smells like smoke, your clothes smell like smoke, even your skin smells like, like a fire pit. And to my knowledge, I don't know anybody who likes that smell on themselves, right? I mean, have you ever heard of a woman saying, hey, I found a new perfume with a nice hickory smoke stint? 
oh, they don't want to smell like smoke, or you know what, I found a brand new conditioner, and, and it has this cherry wood smoke <laughs> notes to it. It's like, no, no one wants their hair to smell like smoke. Interesting point being how strong smoke is to, to permeate. And when I think of one of the temptations of our of Christianity, of the, of, the, of the believing family, of the fellowship of believers of Christ, I think one of the great temptations is to allow the smoke of culture, of the world, with its own belief systems and values, to permeate not only our body but our soul. And how easy it is for that toxic smoke of the world around us to enter in and change us in a way that, was, that we were never meant to change. Now, I've said some rather negative things about culture in the past four weeks, five weeks. Um, not all cultural things are bad. We have a lot of wonderful things in our culture that we celebrate, you know. I love the simple fact that, though I don't utilize it because I'm still mobile, I love the fact that we have handicapped parking, right? For people who are mo have mobility ch challenges, you know, they're able to park closer to the entrance of, of Rayleigh's or Safeway or the church. Um, it's kind. It's generous. That's something good in our culture. Another thing I love about our culture is that, you know, for the most part, people stay in their lanes on the highway. Now, I have been to India one time, 2004, and if there are five lanes at a stoplight, there will be like a 10-speed, a, a Vespa, a bike, a Honda, a Toyota, a dump truck, and a bus all crammed into the lanes. It is utterly and completely horrifying to drive in India. I was white-knuckled the entire time, and I'm like, I like America. I like the fact that most of the time people stay in their lanes. But there are also, as we know, toxic things in our culture. Beliefs and narratives and values that are antithetical to the gospel, to the Bible, and to our relationship with Jesus. And if we're not careful, like smoke to meat, it will contaminate us and change us so that we no longer have the aroma of Jesus in our life but the aroma of the world. Now, the reason that's important is because this particular book, the book of Judges, the people of God, the covenant people of God, the people of Israel, or what we might think of as the Old Testament church, when they made their way into the land of Canaan, they compromised. They allowed the smoke of the pagan culture to contaminate their relationship with God in a way that was not only unhealthy, but it was massively destructive. So one of the things we, we learn when we come to the book of Judges is, or we see is we see a people who have been contaminated by the world. And so I think this particular book is a book for our time. Um, it shows us what happens when we're willing to be conformed to the world rather than to be transformed by the renewing of the mind through the gospel and the power of the spirit. So I'm hoping this morning and praying that this will maybe challenge you personally. I think all of us have areas where we need to rethink, recalibrate, and realign because it's so easy to allow the toxic smoke of culture to infect our Christianity. So with that said, let me tell you what I'm going to do this morning. This is an introductory message, and I will warn you, there's a little bit more content maybe than normal, so you just have to kind of tune your mind into that, that this is more educational. There is application in it, but that's just kind of how it works itself out. What I want to do is I want to uh, talk about the historical context of the book and also the structure of the book. That's, that's part one. 
And then part two is just what are the major thrusts of this book? So those are the kind of the two parts, the historical context and structure, followed by the, I'm gonna give three major thrusts of the book. Beginning with uh, the context, historical context, and the structure of this book of Judges. Now, I don't know how you think, but I think most people probably like to see a picture of the whole before they examine the parts, right? Um, if, you, if you tell me, hey, there's a city named Modine, that does very little for me. But if you hand me a map where I can find out where Modine is between you know, this highway and that highway and north and south, well, now I have my bearings and orientation. Now I can understand where Modine is. Or if you're building a house, it's really good to have the blueprint out and say, hey, here's the kitchen, this is the bathroom, this is where the rooms, and they're laid out nicely. Now I can see the whole. Now we can go and we can work on the parts. So that's kind of the purpose of this first part is just to set historical context and structure so that you can kind of see the big picture before we start to dig into the small bits next week and the weeks following. By the way, this series is about 12 weeks long. Um, starting first with like the historical context of Judges. Now, some of the, for some of you, this is going to be repeat. You're going to think, man, this is just Bible 101. This is so boring. I already know this stuff. Yes, you may. What I'm finding is more and more people who are coming into the church don't understand the basic linear storyline of the Bible into which these books fit. And so it's hard. So if you've, you know this, this first part, historical context, well, this is a refresher. And if you don't, I hope this helps like put things in perspective for you. In large part, you know, the Bible begins with an old creation. It wasn't called old back then, but old creation and ends in a new creation. And the pivotal change or change in plot, the good news or the, 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 the center of, of change to newness from old or from a sin-fallen world to a new kingdom happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is the turning of the plot of biblical history. But the line, or should I say the storyline, largely follows a lineage. That is genealogy. And you can put those little genealogical sections under banners or epics or seasons, as we might say. So this is kind of a basic layout from Adam. Most of us are familiar with Adam and Eve up to the kings of Israel and how Judges fits in. So the Bible follows a genealogy of Adam, and especially after the fall, and it was a catastrophic fall because within generations things got so bad, so corrupt, so evil, so violent that God had to wipe out civilization and start over again in a flood. But it follows the line down to Noah who walked with God. Then he started over, and Noah had a, a son by the name of three, but one by the name of Shem, which, side note, it's the name from which we get Semitic. Old language, still at work today, still functioning today. The Shem would eventually have a, an offspring by the name of Abraham, and God would make a promise to this man that would change the world. In effect, God promised Abraham in covenant. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you and your offspring. I'm going to make you into a family, and I'm going to be yours. Like that was the promise made to Abraham. And the entire Old Testament follows the lineage of Abraham all the way to Jesus. So that's the story of, of basically the, um, 
the lineage. So you have this pre-flood era and then this patriarchal area, that's the era, that's Abraham who gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac gave birth to Jacob, and Jacob gave birth to 12 sons and a daughter. And those 12 sons became the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the patriarchal area, or era, leading to another era of 400 years in which um, fleeing from a severe famine, they, they leave the land of Canaan, and they head south to Egypt where they find grain and food and they live there for 400 years. And this little family, which went by the name of Israel, uh, grew into a nation of a couple million people while in Egypt. At first it was good to be in Egypt, but then it turned sour when they were submitted to slavery to Egypt. So there's a 400 year stint, this sojourn slavery in Egypt. At the end of that, God's people cry out and God raises up Moses. The deliverer, and you know his story. God uses him to deliver them, the exodus, and not only to, to, to destroy or bring the, the, uh, the nation of Egypt to its knees, but also to give them the law, that is to establish a covenant with the people of Israel. Uh, we have the first five books because of Moses. They were led up into the promised land, uh, the land of Canaan, by way of conquest, by Moses' right-hand man by the name of Joshua, you know. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, that whole thing. That's, that's the conquest of, of Canaan, which leads to this period of the judges, which is roughly between three and 400 years. See, one of the issues with judges is that the conquest was not complete. The people were told to conquer Canaan. It was a very wicked culture, and they only did it part way, which meant that they lived in and amongst pagan religion which is part of the problem. And as they compromised to the pagan culture around them, uh, God would judge them, and he would send an enemy, and that enemy would oppress them, and eventually they'd cry out, and God would raise a deliverer that were called judges. So you have a series of 12 judges that basically delivered Israel through this about three to 400-year um, period of time, followed by the era of the kings, you know, King David, King Solomon, and so forth. That is basically kind of a, 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 a historical linear uh, line in which we find this book of Judges. So it is, in one sense, it's kind of a dark period in the history of Israel. So that's the historical context. Hopefully that allows you to pl place the book in terms of flow of history. And of course, we know that Jesus came in that line. He is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. So second, let's talk about the book itself. It's easy to read a book of stories, and some of the stories like Samson are wonderful and Gideon and so forth, and to think this is just a whole thrown-together mishmash of, of interesting narratives that happened. But it's not a mishmash, and it's, it's, it's not just a thrown-together book. It actually is, is, is quite thoughtful, quite creative, and organized uh, with, a, with a sense of parallel and purpose. So I want you to look at this, not, not just to, I don't know, geek out on this, because there's a point to be made in this. So this, this is how the book of Judges lays out. I think you can probably read that. It begins and ends in the same way, or this kind of parallel structure, some call it a chiasm. It begins and then ends at the same place. 
So it opens up with the political failure of Israel. The political failure, meaning they failed to complete the conquest of Canaan. Followed by, under B, there is spiritual and moral failure. That is, they failed to live in covenant with God because they kept cheating on him. Then at the center, under C, we have a list of 12 judges. Now, the number 12 is pretty prominent in the Bible. 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. The association seems to be, this is a reflection of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there are 12 judges in the middle of this book. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, Ibzon, Elon, not to be confused with Elon Musk. Abdon and Samson is the final judge. But then you have these chapters at the very end that have no judges at all. And it repeats the beginning of the book. So there is now not just spiritual failure, but there's spiritual and moral collapse. The entire integrity of worship is compromised within the people of Israel. And it ends on the complete and utter political collapse as the, as the country goes to civil war. And one of the tribes is almost entirely wiped out. So you have these, you see the parallels, A and A at the bottom run in parallel. B and B run in parallel, spiritual and moral collapse. What I do want you to notice, and why I think this is important, and not just a, I think one of the intriguing things is like, people think the Bible is just, like I said, throwing together stories. It's not. It is, it is so wonderfully woven together. But what you'll notice in this little scheme here in the makeup of the book is it has a downward trend to it. It begins with a political failure to take the whole land, but it ends in political collapse as the country turns on each other. It begins with moral failure, but what you find is a complete perversion of the worship of God by the time you get to the end of the book. So this is a book that spirals downhill to the very end. That's part of the structure and the way it's laid out. Not only so, but even the 12 judges themselves spiral downhill. The first judge, Othniel, we meet in chapter 3. And he's the only judge that, it, that has there, no record of flaws. Doesn't mean he was flaw, uh, flawless. It just means there was no record of flaws. So that's how he's presented, as a good judge. By the time you get down to Samson, as much as we might like his, like, <laughs> Samson was a womanizer. He was a profligate. He had an insanely short temper. Had no problem just taking out people if he was mad. Uh, and, and it seems by, by the description of his life, he had no regard for the people and all the regard for himself. Completely self-absorbed. Now, there is a, a wonderful upturn in the book of Sam, or the, the, the story of Samson that we'll get to when we get to him. That is, I think, fantastic. But by and large, you end up with a slide downhill from the first judge to the last judge. What mirrors that is another slide, a spiritual slide, in the sense of when God's people are oppressed at the beginning of the book, they cry out. That is, they pray, God help us. And God helps. By the time you get to Samson, people do not cry out. They do not pray. Even prayer itself has evaporated from the people of God. 
So you see the trajectory of this book and why they call this a dark book. In fact, it's a bloody book. It's a, it's a graphic book. It's just, I think when you add up all the lives lost, over 250,000 people die. So you're thinking, wow, Dan, this is a wonderfully dark book. I'm so excited. But why is it here then? Other than its historical significance. Why did God put it in here? That brings us to the second part of this. Why? What are we supposed to take away from the book of Judges? And one obvious one I've already alluded to in the opening introduction is the simple fact that it shows us, as God's people in the 21st century, the consequences of conforming to the world. It shows us the consequences, the dangerous, devastating consequences of allowing the toxic smoke of the world that's antithetical to our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God, um, to our lives. So here's a snippet of how they uh, compromised. This is chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, and this is kind of a summary of what's going to happen in the rest of the book. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The Baals were gods, fertility gods, god of thunder, god of rain, god of makes your crops grow. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, you see? And bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So you can see it right here. It's like basically they, they adopted the theology and the religion of the people around them, and they left God behind. The God who saved them out of Egypt. The God who loved them. The God who calls them my treasured possession. They left him behind. And as a result, God judges them. That is the, the danger of compromise. At one point, what's supposed to define their, their lives and their community and their nation is the covenant uh, of Moses. That's... That was to be the center, is the words that were delivered by God through Moses to the people. This is supposed to be how we live. Instead, they allowed the pagan culture to become the center and that, the, the defining um, idea of how they were going to live their lives. They were going to worship other gods. And we maybe can't understand that in the 21st century because we don't have little gods like Baal or Asherah. But we do have our gods. They just don't come in little form like this. They usually have pictures of presidents on them and technology and, and identities tied to new things. But in the, those times, it's like, man, if you, were, if you, if you had, to, had to if you make your living on the basis of the sale of your crops, and you live in the Middle East where it doesn't rain all the time, and you're thinking, if I don't have crops, I can't feed my family. And you knew there was a God, little g, who specialized in rain and crop production. Do you think maybe you'd be tempted to go, I think I'm going to hedge my bet and cover my bases and go offer a sacrifice just to make sure. Or if you're going to take a, you know, a voyage on a dangerous sea and there's a God that specializes in seafaring, I think maybe you'd be tempted to hedge your bets and cover your bases and go, I think I'm going to do this for the sake of safe passage. We are an anxious and fearful people. 
And because of that, we love to hedge our bets by putting confidence in things other than the Lord. And in so doing, what we say to the Lord, and in effect, what we do is we say, I don't trust you. I don't believe you're enough for me. I don't believe you'll be there for me. And so what we do is we hedge our bets by placing our confidence in, say, money or wealth or in a relationship. Nothing wrong with money, wealth, or relationship, but if we're leaning on that for our sense of security, then are we doing anything different? This is a, what Paul taught us in, in, in Romans chapter 12 comes to mind, where he wrote this, to the church, to you and to me. He said, do not be conformed to this world, its values, its beliefs, its narratives, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that is through the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Conformed? by the world, or to the world, or transformed. And here's the thing. You're either doing one or the other. Our lives are either being conformed to the values, beliefs, and narratives of this world, which is antithetical to God, or our lives are being transformed and changed into the image of Christ. Let me just say this. There's no neutral ground. You're either experiencing one or the other. So what, what is it in your cases? Like, are you being transformed into the likeness of Christ through the gospel, through the word, through his grace? Or are you allowing the toxic smoke of this world to infect your beliefs? Very important question for us each to examine and to know as a community, we have a communal responsibility to make sure that we are transformed not conformed. It's a responsibility of congregants, pastors, elders, and deacons to make sure that we do our absolute best to keep the toxic smoke from infecting our communal life and our, our spiritual life. So part of the reason this book is so dark is it provides for us a warning. For us to see it and go, I don't want to take that path. We don't want to take that path because it ends very poorly. My father told me this when I was young. My dad, um, he said, Danny, there's two things you will not do while you live in my house. You will not play football. You will not ride a motorcycle. Uh, football, because he had too many friends with pins and, and jacked up bodies that he said, I just don't want you to experience that. The humor in it, and maybe the irony is that well, he wouldn't let me play football. He loved to watch it. <laughs> so you watch people get broken, but I can't play football. But I'm thankful at this time that I can still walk and I don't have pins in my knees. The motorcycle thing, of course, you know. He just didn't want to see me be a, an organ donor. You know, I had too many friends wreck on motorcycles. And, uh, and, and I listened to him. I didn't, I, I've never owned a motorcycle. And by the way, that's not a judgment for you motorcycle riders. If you like Harley Davidson, hey, you Harley yourself ride on. Just make sure you have donor on your, on your license. I'm kidding. But I will tell you, I will tell you, I, 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 was, I was driving down Greenback Lane. And it was really early in the morning. The sun was coming up. And it was right down Greenback Lane. That's up on the other side of Sacramento. And this truck was waiting to turn out onto Greenback Lane, and the sun was right over the road, and so he, he, he couldn't see 
So he pulled out, and I was pulling this way, and he pulled out in front of a motorcycle. And I watched the back of that, that truck just swing around, and his bike went one way, and he skidded on the, uh, the asphalt a different way. And as we drove past, there he was completely lifeless, and he was just staring. Now, I don't know how the story ended, whether the man died in that moment or not, but I'll tell you what, that cured me from any desire whatsoever to ride a motorcycle. Like I said, no judgment on you if you want to ride one, because you're probably really good at it, but me, I don't trust myself with that. The point being, sometimes you have to see something in its darkness for your heart to be convinced, I don't want to do that. This book teaches us, tells us, screams at us, don't conform yourself to the world. Don't do it. It ends horribly. So that's one of the thrusts of the book. Let me get a little lighter. Another thrust of the book is I believe that this particular book of Judges teaches us the need for a king. A king. As we make our way to the end of the book, we find this phrase repeated four times. Verse 6 of chapter 17, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1, In those days there was no king in Israel. 19, verse 1, In those days when there was no king in Israel. And then verse 25 of chapter 21, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Four times, it reminds us there was no king at that time when the people were doing what's right in their own eyes. And notice those two are connected, at least in two instances. No king, people did whatever they wanted. That is, this is the classic definition of anarchy. People doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no one ruling over them. No ruler, no rule of law. Now, some have seen this as uh, a negative. I see it as a positive. I think this book establishes the fact that people need a king. But not just any kind of king. In particular, a king after God's own heart. A king with the character of God. A king who will rule with wisdom, with justice, and, and love. The way God would rule in the world. The world needs leadership. It needs, and don't we know that? The world needs leadership. In effect, it needs a king. Now, someone would object and say, wait a second, Dan. I know the Bible well enough to know that in 1 Samuel, God pretty much chastises his people because they ask for a king. Like the other nations. It's true. God does chastise his own people, Israel, because they want a king. So how does that work with what you're saying? I think the issue was not with the idea of king so much as their motivation for asking for one and the kind of king that they wanted. Their motivation was to have, to have somebody who's human that they could, they could trust to deliver them. They wanted to transfer security from God to a person, to a man. That's part of the issue. They didn't want to have to be loyal to God. They want a king to deliver them like the other nations. And God basically said, yes, I'll give you a king like the other nations. And he gave him King Saul. He was taller than everybody else. He had the look of a king. He had the power of a king. But he had no faith. And he was a fearful man. He was a king like the other nations. 
God supplied a second king who was a man after his own heart. King David kind of fit the bill, but not, because he too was a sinner. You see, we, we do well to remember that from the very beginning, God had designed the idea of king. It's kind of interesting, by the way, to think that the final form of government in the new creation will not be a democracy. It will be a monarchy, the rule of one, a perfect one. But that was God's design from the very beginning. So just to refresh your memory, we have Genesis 1 where God tells basically Adam and Eve to have dominion. It's a ruler word. It's a king word. God promises Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 16, this part of his covenant, he says, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. In this light, it's positive. In Genesis 49, there is this, this, this kind of the final departing words of Jacob to his 12 sons before he passes off the scene. When he gets to Judah, he makes this prophecy. He says, the scepter, is the implement of a king, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So you see, from the very get-go, God's design was to have a king on the earth, but the right king. And the only king that fits that bill was born in Bethlehem in a manger. The only king that fits that bill is the one who died for his people, rose for his people, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all, and will one day have every knee bow before him. Someday we will see the face of the king, and when he comes, the world will be made right in a way that no government, no party can ever make it right. Only him. And the thing is, is that we have a king now. You and me, anybody who's a Christian, we have basically become disciples of the king. When he left, he commanded his, his apostles, it's like, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded him. Our allegiance is to a king. We need a king. We need someone to tell us what's right and what's wrong. We need someone to say, this is what I've done for you. This is what I will do for you. I will be there for you always. We need that kind of a king to trust in, to know that he loves us and to love him back. It's, it's that belief, that trust, and that love in our king, the only king that fits the bill, that will keep the toxic smoke of the culture from infecting us, is to keep him at the center, our king. So I believe this particular book establishes the need for the king. Third and final, I think that this particular book displays or shows us the justice and the mercy of God. It's full of warning, but it's also full of gospel. On the justice side, or should I say justice in the form of judgment, again, we read, and this is the first judge, Othniel says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You're going to hear that repetition over and over again like a broken record. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rashathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served that really long name for eight years. That is, they were subjected to slavery. I want you to notice something that I think is very important. 
One of the dynamics of God's judgment in this world is that if you want to worship something other than him, then he will give you over to your enemies. So they worship the Baals, and guess what? God hands them over to the enemies. It's like, you, you want to worship false gods? I will turn you over into the nations and your enemies who worship the false gods. And that dynamic is, is repeated over and over and over again of God giving people over in judgment. That's true not just in Judges, but true through the whole Bible. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1, doesn't he? He says, if you want to worship the crea creation rather than the creator, guess what? I'm going to give you over to what you want. And in giving you over to what you want, I'm giving you over to the enemy of sin and destruction and death. The book of Revelation is all about that. It's like, you want to worship the beast? To the beast you shall go. It's really important to recognize part of the aspects, not the whole of God's judgment, but part of the aspect of God's judgment is he turns people over to their enemies. That is an act of judgment. He turns them over to their desires. And are we not witnessing that right now, fast forward in our culture? Wonder why everything's changing so quickly. The hands of the Lord have been pulled back in a secular culture, just let things slide downhill. It's going to continue. That's how God judges. And I want you to keep that logged away for, for a moment. God does this for his people. His own people. He turns them over to his enemy. Which is a reminder that God does and will discipline his church. If it's willing to compromise to the toxic smoke of our culture. You say, wait a second. Is that true? I thought God was full of grace. Well, yeah, he is. He's also a God of justice. Peter said this. This is Apostle Peter in his first letter. He said, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It begins there. Jesus comes to the people of Laodicea, the church of Laodicea, and they had completely accommodated themselves to the Laodicean culture they thought they were rich, and Jesus says, you're poor. They thought they were in the center, but he said, in fact, instead he says, no, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, and I just want to vomit you out of my mouth. That's Jesus, about to vomit a church out of his mouth. I mean, it's very graphic. I don't think that we can ever overemphasize the grace and love of God. Let me say that again. I don't believe we can ever overemphasize the grace or love of God. However, we can de-emphasize the importance of obedience as a fruit of faith. We can de-emphasize the importance of our obedience to Christ because we trust and love him. That can be de-emphasized, and I think in many respects it is. God is infinitely gracious towards his people. But he is also a God who is holy and just. And there ought to be a sense of fear, healthy, reverent fear for who he is as almighty God, creator and judge of people. But notice there's mercy right alongside. As soon as they cry out, right? That's in the text too. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, that is, they prayed, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. He showed grace and he showed mercy. Now let's reflect on this for a bit. A couple seconds. There's this period of between three and four hundred years where God's people keep like turning away, 
crying out, turning away, crying out, turning away, being judged, crying out. And it happens over and over and over again. That'd be like, in modern day terms, that'd be like having an incorrigible, unruly teenager for 400 years. <laughs> you know, in, 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 in our legal, you know, structures, a lot of times it just takes three strikes. Strike three, you're out of there. For three, almost 400 years, God says, okay, I'll save again. And again. And again. And again. And again, every time they call out to him with a spirit of repentance, he's like, I'm there. Like God is ready and willing to be merciful to anyone who just says, Lord, I need your help, and I'm sorry where I've been. That is such a wonderful picture of the riches of how merciful he is to us. That he would do this over and over and over again. Man, I'd be strike three, you're done. Which means I get three streak, but I'm done. It's like. No, recognizing that God's mercies are new every morning and he is quick to give mercy to people who turn to him with a sense of repentance and remorse. That's the mercy of God. So side by side, you have the judgment of God, but you also have this enduring mercy of God. Now, let me, let me close with this because I told you to log away how God does just judgment in this world. One of the ways is he turns people over to their enemies. That is the context or the matrix by which we understand what Jesus did for us. When Jesus went into Jerusalem, he ascended into Jerusalem for the last time. He knew full well he was going to be delivered over into the hands of his enemies. And he did so willingly. He said, I'm going to be handed over, delivered over to the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. And they're going to have their way with me, and they are going to kill me. Jesus himself walked straight into a den of lions, his enemies, and offered himself. And God handed his own son over to his enemies as an act of judgment, but for no sin of his own. But for the sins of me and you. Like C.S. Lewis got it right when Aslan, you know, makes his way to the stone table. And on each side of the road, there are these ghoulish devils who are tearing at him. And he is humiliated as he lets them do it. He lets their enemies have their way with him. Jesus was handed over and gave himself over to his enemies as a sacrifice so that the judgment would fall upon him instead of us. So even here, we see um, how judgment works. And that person who did it willingly walked into the, into the clutches of hell itself and said, I'll pay, even though I didn't do anything wrong. That is the king. That's our king. You tell me, who would you rather serve? This culture or a king who would do that for you? Who would you rather have saturate and permeate your life with his spirit the culture that is very unloving and self-centered or the spirit of jesus christ church we have to um, be vigilant and alert cannot let the toxic smoke of the culture with its values narratives and its beliefs to cause us to conform but rather to allow the wonder and the beauty and the magnificence of jesus to transform us 
into people who are like him. Amen? Gracious Father, I thank you for your kindness towards us, even in giving us this word. I pray for our souls and just our communal faith, Lord, that we would be vigilant and watchful. I pray that where there is compromise and where you have and will uncover areas of compromise or where we're conforming, I just pray that you give us the strength, the sight, the wherewithal to be able to say, Lord, this needs to be mortified in my life, and I want to follow Christ above all else and love him above all else and trust him above all else. And it's in his name I pray.